Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, what are the fruits of meditation? The Buddha would say that meditation is the fruit of meditation. I have often heard that, and to some extent at least agree, but I'm curious what some of the more concrete fruits of meditation are. Meditation for meditation's sake is certainly enough to motivate the monks and the renunciants, but what if a householder asks me what the fruits of meditation are? That's a good question. I would say that the seven factors of awakening are the fruits of meditation. Mindfulness, investigation into the nature of reality, energy, joy, relaxation, concentration, and equanimity. For me, meditation has also brought freedom from the hindrances. Such attainments are quite a boon indeed. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing the eight jhanas in Buddhism. What are the four rupa jhanas? What are the four erupa jhanas? How do they function in the context of meditation? We hope you enjoy. So, let's get started. What are the four rupa jhanas? These are the four meditative attainments that are reached by skilled and trained meditators. These four attainments, or these like states of mind, are accessible only after the five hindrances have been overcome. And so we kind of have to talk about those first before we can talk about what the actual jhanas themselves are. These hindrances are thought of as being these chronic or these systemic barriers that all meditators are sort of battling with at one time or the other and are sort of counter to the goals of meditation. The hindrances are sensory desire, seeking for pleasure through the five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and physical feeling, ill will, feelings of hostility, resentment, hatred, and bitterness, sloth and torpor, half-hearted action with little or no effort or concentration, restlessness and worry, the inability to calm down and being anxious, doubt, the lack of conviction or the lack of trust in one's own abilities. These kind of all get in the way of the meditator and are they're barriers to actual true realized mindfulness. And so these things are sort of the barrier of entry. You have to overcome these before you can even get to any one of the jhanas. And overcoming these things by themselves is a practice that takes a long time before you can even start to practice jhanic meditation, as they call it. As for the jhanas themselves, we've discussed this term before. Jhana means to observe or to mentally look at. And this is, as you know, where we get the word Zen from. Jhana in Sanskrit is transliterated, translated as Chan in Chinese, and then travels to where the word is read as Zen. These are essentially meditative states of mind and body, which are only achieved by concerted practice. This can be a practice of concentration on one single thing. It can be a concentration on a certain doctrine or an object or on an image. It can also be attained by following a meditative process that's outlined in a sutta. For example, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, which we read and discussed very early on in the show, that is sort of like a manual for how to meditate. And also you can reach these jhanas through visualization practice. 
we read and discussed the Contemplation Sutra, which is itself a visualization manual for visualizing Amida's Pure Land. And you can reach the jhanas by going through those steps outlined in that sutta. Before I list the four jhanas, note that these are rupa jhanas. Rupa is the Sanskrit word for form, and this refers specifically to the fact that these jhanas are mind jhanas. And the mind is a dharma that exists in the rupa loka, as it's known in Pali, or the rupa datu, as it's known in Sanskrit. This is the realm of form. This should be familiar to you as we have discussed the relationship between form and mind in the episode on the five skandhas. We'll talk about the arupa jhanas, or the formless jhanas, in a moment, but for now here are the four rupa jhanas, or the form jhanas. The first jhana is entered when one is secluded from sensuality and unwholesome mental factors. There is rapture, or piti, and non-sensual sukha, or pleasure, as a result of seclusion and right effort, while discursive thought or categorical thinking sort of still is continuing. We're going to leave that behind later, but for now, you're still able to think clearly about things, concentrate and contemplate as we might do in our daily lives. Also, not included in this description is the fact that we've overcome the five hindrances already. So you're also experiencing rapture or joy and pleasure from having overcome those five hindrances. The second jhana is piti or rapture and non-sensual sukha or pleasure as a result of the concentration on the object that you're concentrating on, on the sutra that you're concentrating on, on the image or whatever. And it's also the unification of awareness. So the unification of awareness of body, of mind, of thought, of emotion, and so on free from discursive thought. So we have left this discursive thought. We've left this categorical thinking, this calculating mind, this mind that's always trying to put things in boxes. Also, it's been called the monkey mind. It jumps around to a lot of different things at a lot of different times. It's the, the stream of consciousness, you might say. In addition to that, we also have inner tranquility. So you're starting to have the roots of the meditative attainments of being peaceful of having slowed down your body and your mind and achieving some sort of stillness in yourself. The third jhana is equanimity. So you have been freed from the sensual pleasures that we have talked about before and the non-sensual pleasures that we've talked about. So not only are you free from any sort of like sensory attachment, sensory engagement, also from non-sensory engagement. Whereas before you might have felt joy, which is a positive experience, it's still kind of an experience that is subject to craving and subject to the arising of attachment. And in the third jhana, you have what is essentially the first foundation of being totally equanimous. And of course, also you're alert, you're mindful, and this inner tranquility and this cessation of discursive thought and this unification of awareness has sort of turned the volume up a little bit. It's sort of settled in. In the fourth jhana, you have absolute purity of this equanimity and also of mindfulness. So here you truly experience neither pleasure nor pain. This is the beginning of where it's said in some of the texts that the meditators, the bodhisattvas, the buddhas, the arhats, the pracheka buddhas, the regular practitioners, it's in this jhana where it's said that they can actually cultivate supernatural powers or psychic powers. This is because in this state, you've sort of attained a as close you can, as you can get to having turned off the process of vijnapti, of cognition experience, of 
reaching out with your consciousness karmically towards experiences or in response to experiences. This is a very difficult level to get to and represents an extreme amount of practice of knowledge and wisdom and of mindfulness and of stillness. Because any sort of effect of the body, any sort of sensation that you might feel inside or outside, any sort of emotion that might come up or memory that you might think of, or any sort of activity of the monkey mind will completely topple this jhana and send you flying back to one of the hindrances at worst, right? Or if you're lucky, you'll still be in one of the jhanas afterwards. So this is a very difficult state to be in. These jhanas are first described in the Pali Canon, and thus they represent a very early development in the Buddhist meditation tradition in East Asia. To that end also, they're also found in most texts in mention or in some sort of reference, and they are foundational to most if not all practices that are carried out in Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana branches of Buddhism. Calling back a bit to the hindrances, as we mentioned, one in particular, doubt, is one that I want to examine more closely. So could we talk a bit about what exactly is being doubted here as far as the hindrances are concerned? Absolutely, yeah. So this doubt that we're talking about in Pali is vichikicha. So this is a specific type of doubt. There are plenty of other words in Sanskrit and Pali that get translated into the word doubt for different uses, and so we should be careful knowing that there's a translation a translation soup going on here between this kind of doubt and other kinds of doubt. This specific kind of doubt refers to the situational, moody, emotional doubt that you feel sometimes where it's like, I don't think that I can do this, or I don't think that this will work, or I don't think that this is useful right now. Whenever it's something that is proven useful, like meditation, right? Something that if you're a Buddhist, if you are a monk in particular, especially, you know that it's a beneficial thing to do. But sometimes we just get distracted. Sometimes we don't feel like it, right? These hindrances kind of represent all of that stuff. For example, sensory desire is like, no, I would rather eat instead. Or ill will is like, no, I'm angry at my master, Sloth and torpor is like, I just don't feel like it. I'd rather stay in bed. Restlessness and worry is just generalized anxiety. And doubt here is like, I just don't think it'll be a good thing. I don't think it'll be fun. I don't think I want to do it. And so this is a lack of conviction in the practice itself. And it's a lack of conviction and trust in one's own abilities to do it well. This is very distinctive from the great doubt type of thing that you might see in Zen Buddhism, for example. In Zen Buddhism, one of the side effects, one of the deliberate byproducts of practicing using koans is to cultivate the great doubt. And this doubt is different. This doubt is critical thinking. This doubt is skepticism. This doubt is like, I won't believe it until I see it happen and work for me. This doubt is like, I'm going to measure this based on my experience and my knowledge, right? And so that kind of doubt is not a hindrance. In fact, that kind of doubt can sometimes encourage people to try something like meditation and can encourage people to actually take leaps of faith that they might not have done before. So the way that that works is if you have this great doubt, you're sort of chewing on the outer shell of something that is in the Buddhist doctrine 
allegedly going to make you enlightened without a doubt over time, right? And if you have this great doubt, you're, you're trying to peel away those layers. You're trying to chew on that outer shell and, and break it and get into what's actually going to be useful and actually going to be productive for you. And so that sort of great doubt is that activity of peeling away those layers and actually penetrating into what it is in the koan practice or in any other kind of practice is going to actually be beneficial to you. This doubt in the hindrances is more like, I just don't feel like it. And that's something that kind of has to be overcome specifically by people who meditate for eight hours a day every day. Okay, cool. I wanted to put that up there specifically because, you know, the great doubt that you're describing sounds like a very good idea, whereas discarding all doubt is, in my mind, a very bad idea. So this is a matter of translation, where the original language had a more precise word that English kind of lacks. Exactly. Okay, cool. So let's get back to the script. So what are the four Arupa jhanas? These are states that are grouped into the jhana scheme, but are not actually described as jhanas in the original text. We call them arupa jhanas, or the formless jhanas, in the commentarial literature, and now, of course, in English discourse. But in the original text, they're actually called arupa ayatanas. This means like sense sphere, or perception sphere. Whenever we talk, of course, about like the ayatanas, we're talking about like sight and seeing and eyes, and we're talking about sound and hearing and ears. And that's kind of how we should understand these is that like they're, they're formless, the formless sense spheres, right? Seeing and sight and, and visible objects have to have form in order for all of that to work. And these formless or these arupa ayatanas don't need form in order to actually be a sense faculty. But it's complicated to think about them as sense faculties because we don't actually have them as sense faculties. According to the five skanda scheme, our sense faculties are just the six that we know of, right? And they all are inherently reliant on form. Form is the first of these five skandhas. And if we work backwards from there, that's where we get our sensations. So don't think of them necessarily as sense faculties in the same way you might think of sight and seeing and visible objects. Think of them a little bit differently. However, back to the discussion of where we get this idea about the jhana scheme having eight jhanas in it. The form jhanas and the formless jhanas are ultimately separate from each other. They are separate meditative attainments and separate meditative practices and are reached through entirely different means. But they are both regarded respectively as sets of jhanas because of the commentarial literature. The formless jhanas are conditions or states of attainment that take place in a formless realm. So this relates to Buddhist cosmology, right? We have the realm we're in now, samsara, the realm of form, and so on. But then there's formless realms out there, which are realms that are only accessible through meditative attainments or through being reborn through a certain pathway. Humans can be reborn into those realms as devas. You remember that devas are one of the six realms. They're the gods. And they can be reborn there if they have attained certain meditative absorptions in a previous life, or they can be entered into through like really intense and difficult meditation that's done here in this realm. The realm that we're talking about, this formless realm, is formless. So it has no physical location and is entirely a realm of like consciousness. You're not reborn into that realm with a physical body. 
the five skandhas don't work there. Only one of the skandhas is actually there, and that's consciousness. This realm has a couple of stipulations as well. One is that the bodhisattvas can never be reborn into these realms because their job, their final task before their final enlightenment, is in the realm of the humans. They need to be here in order to save people. Their job is to save sentient beings, and so they have to be here. As an extension of the first stipulation, the Dharma is not preached there. This is an entirely silent realm. Therefore, bodhisattvas cannot be born there because they must hear the teaching at least once as bodhisattvas. That's one of the requirements to progress through the bodhisattva pathway. So they can't be born there either. However, other beings can be born there. And like I said, this can also be entered through meditation since it's a realm of consciousness. Once that happens, the four formless ayatanas can be attained, and they are the following. Infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. And I suppose it's going to be difficult to really describe what those mean since understanding those requires being able to understand a formless existence. And that's not really something that it's like describing the taste of chocolate to somebody who's never had it, I would guess. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can think of it sometimes as like whenever some people have meditated before, and this, this has happened in small ways to me even before, there are certain experiences that you can have. One experience is where you feel like you're extremely incredibly large, right? The borders of your physical body don't really work anymore. They don't actually barrel you into your only body. And you, you can feel your yourself being infinitely large or close to infinitely large, maybe just immeasurably large, right? You feel like you are very much larger than your physical body. And that can be like the fifth jhana or the infinite space ayatana. This can also be true of infinite consciousness, the sixth jhana. Sometimes we might feel like our mind is very large. Sometimes we might feel like our perception is very large, larger than the sense bases that we have in our physical bodies. When it comes to the seventh and eighth jhanas, infinite nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception, that is where it gets increasingly difficult for me to relate it to an experience that I might have had or not had in meditation, but also an experience that anybody else may or may not have had. It's almost impossible, and I would actually say in some cases it is impossible, for a human being to actually conceive of capital N nothing, right? This isn't really a Buddhist thing, but just thinking about nothing is actually just thinking about the absence of something. It's not thinking about true nothing. And of course, the eighth jhana being what we said before to be equanimity, it's sort of like sense equanimity. You're not perceiving, but you're also not not perceiving. <laughs> so it's this weird non-dual place where you're infinitely aware, but you're also not grabbing at sensory information with your discursive brain, right? That's what's being avoided here. And it should be noted that there are plenty of times where these jhanas are described together, like close together in texts, but you know you don't go from number four to number five. It just doesn't really always work that way, but they can be kind of grouped together sometimes. All right. So how do they function in the context of meditation? So the jhanas are means of cultivating the seven factors of awakening. These seven factors are the seven wholesome states or qualities that all lead to enlightenment, that improve our daily lives and that of others, and which are their own fruits, right? They're their own 
sort of good thing, their own good result. These seven factors are mindfulness, investigation into the nature of reality, energy, joy, relaxation, concentration, equanimity. And these are sort of cultivated as a practice, right? You kind of you're kind of nurturing these through meditation practices that employ or involve the jhanas, especially the rupa jhanas, the form jhanas. Some of these jhanas have these states actually listed as direct results or direct attainments from that specific jhana, such as equanimity. Furthermore, these jhanas are in themselves a form of Buddhist meditation practice, right? So they can be the result of a separate meditation practice, like a byproduct, or they can be something that you try to do just in itself. This is especially true of the rupa jhanas, but also true of the arupa jhanas, the form jhanas and the formless. Everything that Buddhists do as a practice, as a ritual, individually and together, is derived from or includes a form of meditation, right? And it deals with these good meritorious acts that are a result of having meditated, of having cultivated wisdom. The root of good meritorious acts is said in Buddhism to be wisdom attained through meditation. So in that regard, the jhanas are the bedrock for what I am regarding as at least 50%, if not more, of all Buddhist practice. As to how they're related, these jhanas are listed in sequence, but once mastered, they're not regarded as such. This is true of both sets. Any of them can be the one that you enter into, and you can move back and forth between them. In fact, we'll read about this in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. At the moment of the Buddha's death, he is said to have meditated and gone up and down and around in these four form jhanas in particular, right before passing away. He goes one, two, three, four, three, two, one, and then two, three, four, and so on. He goes back and forth in the cycle several times. So they're not necessarily sequential. You can move both directions in them depending on your meditation practice and what form it takes. Anything else we need to get on the recording? No, I think that takes care of it. All right. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode on the jhanas. Join us next week, where we will discuss the major persecutions of Buddhism in East Asian history. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hebrew. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or tweet us at brightbuddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.